Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Uh, we've uh, been working our way through the book of Hebrews, but uh, we've taken a break from that for the Christmas holiday. And now here at the beginning of the year, we want to break at least one more Sunday to focus on the truth of God's Word and what it can do in our hearts and lives um, our habit as Refuge Church before we merged together to form this church as Christ Fellowship Leesville with Leesville Baptist was at the beginning of every year to look at a passage of Scripture that would remind us of the power and truth of God's Word. And so as we begin the new year together, I want to challenge us to evaluate our walk with the Lord in this coming year, looking over our past year and preparing and planning for this coming year, you know, I'll be honest, I used to be cynical about New Year's resolutions, but I do think that the turning of a calendar year is a gift from God. It was given to us in creation. Uh, God created days and years, not us. Genesis chapter 1 verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. God intended us to measure our lives by days and by years. And so I think it's appropriate for us to take the beginning of a new year to set goals for our walk with the Lord. And of course, we want to depend on his mercy and grace every step of the way. We cannot do it in our own strength. And so... My prayer is, is that as we look at Psalm 19 together this morning, that the Lord would use it in my heart and in your heart to challenge us to commit ourselves to be a people who pursue God's word regularly, to commit ourselves to regular Bible reading. And so it's a privilege to be here in Psalm 19 with you. I, you know, I mentioned our habit is refuge before we merge together. My first Sunday, uh, my first New Year's Sunday uh, at Refuge Church, I preached on this very passage on Psalm 19. I believe it's that important that it sets our gaze and focus on the power of God's word and what God intends to use his word to accomplish in our lives. And so... I pray that he will use this passage to do that very thing in us this morning. So let me read for us from Psalm 19. I'll read the entire uh, chapter of Psalm 19, verses 1 through 14, but we're going to focus mainly on verses 1 through 11. So let me read uh, Psalm 19 for us this morning, and then I will take a moment and pray for the Lord's help. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. 
In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words in my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, we are, again, thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. Father, as we have the privilege to come together this morning under the truth and authority of your word, we acknowledge that apart from the work of your spirit within us, we would still be in darkness. We would still be captive to our sinful blindness. But we are thankful that by the power of your spirit, you have awakened our souls. You have given us eyes to see. You have allowed us to, to read your word, to see it, to understand it, for it to bring conviction to us for, us, for it to point us toward truth. And so, Father, I pray that it would do that very thing in our hearts and lives this morning. But not only that, Father, I pray that you would use your word to give us a renewed commitment to your word in this coming year. Father, I pray that you would help us to treasure it. I pray that you would create a, a supernatural longing within us to not want to go a day without it. Not to check a box, as Dennis uh, warned us against, not to do that, Father, but in order to know more of who you are, to increase our joy and satisfaction in Christ, to change us and make us more like Jesus for our good and for the glory of your name. And so, Father, as we pray every single week, I pray again that you would be at work in us this morning through the truth of your word. I pray that you would guide my words this morning, allow me to say only what is true of you and what is true of your word, and I pray that you would lead us into all truth. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I'm sure you know, there is a big difference between being told, being told we must do something and being shown that we should want to do something, right? One can feel burdensome and overbearing. The other can feel inviting and compelling, right? So, for example, when you watch television, when commercials come on, they're not, com typically, <laughs> they're not commanding you to do something, right? So if, you, if you're watching a commercial for Disney World, it's not just a black screen with words on the screen that say, you must go to Disney World, right? 
right? That's not what they do. They're not telling you what you need to do. It doesn't say you must take your family to Disney World. I mean, they know that if that's all they did, it wouldn't ever convince you to hook up your credit card to their vacuum that just sucks everything out of it, right? They, they wouldn't, they know that's not going to work. So what do they do instead? They show you, right? They show you how wonderful a trip can be to Disney World, right? There's images and video of families smiling and children laughing as they skip down Main Street, USA. You can't imagine being in a better place, right? What do they say in the commercial? It's the what? It's the happiest place on earth, right? What, what a grand claim to make, right? The happiest place on earth. They help you visualize what it would be like if your family is there, right? You're going to be full of joy and satisfaction, right? There's nothing better that you could spend your time doing and spend your dollars on than going there to Disney World and being full of joy and being full of happiness if you come, right? They want to show you that. They want to compel you by showing you what a great time you will have. Well, look, in a similar way, there are a lot of commands in Scripture, no doubt. But there are many places where the Bible isn't commanding us. It's wooing us. It's meant to draw us in. It's showing us the greatness or the glory or the pleasures or benefits if we just take part in what it has to offer us. Now, there are no perfect illustrations, right? Because the reality is what Disney World promises, it can never fully deliver, right? They don't tell you that it's going to be 110 degrees while you're waiting in a two-hour line to ride on a three-minute roller coaster and your kids are going to get grouchy and hungry and you're probably going to get grouchy and hungry and there's going to be some fights about what ride to do next and about whether you're done or whether you're tired or your feet hurt or you need to sit down, or, right? So it's not a perfect illustration, right? But, but the difference is what the Bible offers us, what it woos us with, what it shows us we can have, it always delivers on. It always delivers on what it promises us. This is what David wants to do for us in Psalm 19. You know, far too often we come to Scripture and we are wired to expect command, right? We expect it to say, do better. But you will search in vain in Psalm 19 for one single command. There are no commands in Psalm 19. Uh, sorry, I keep saying 119. In Psalm 19. There are no commands in Psalm 19. David's goal isn't to tell you that you must make the Word of God a part of your life. His goal is to show you the power of God's word in such a way that you can't imagine living life without it. That's what he wants to do for us in Psalm 19. He is presenting the word in such a way that he wants your heart to swell with desire and to say, yes, that's what I need. That's what I long for. So my prayer this morning is simply this. That we will leave here this morning saying, I don't want to go another day without reading the Word of God. I don't want to live without the Word of God at work in my life 
and in my heart. This is what God is saying to us through David's words here in Psalm 19. So as I said, we're going to focus on the first 11 verses. And uh, the Psalm 19 as a whole is divided into three main sections. You have 1 through 6, 7 through 11, and then 12 through 16. But we're going to focus on those first two sections, 1 through 6, and then 7 through 11. But as we focus on those two sections, those 11 verses, there are, there are three truths that emerge from these verses. Number one, the limits of revelation in nature, the limits of God's revelation in nature. Number two, the power of the word. And number three, the worth of the word. The limits of God's revelation in nature, the power of the word, and the worth of the word. So let's look first at verses one through six and see the limits of revelation in nature. Look there with me in verse one. David began Psalm 19 by saying, the heavens, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. David's point is simply this. You can look to the skies. You can look to the heavens. You can walk outside right now or tonight and look to the stars. And as you gaze upward, you can see the glory of God on display. That's what verse 1 is saying to us. God's glory, God's nature is on display in creation. The heavens are declaring it. The sky is proclaiming his handiwork. That's, that's what verse 1 is saying. And the verses 2 through 6 simply expound on exactly how that happens, right? So verse 2 says, look, we're going to continually see it on display. It is a, a never-ceasing display of God's glory. Day to day pours out speech, right? It's not just hints of it here and there. No, it's every single day creation is pouring out the revelation of God's glory for our eyes to see. Night to night is revealing the knowledge of who God is. Not a day passes, not a night goes by that we cannot see the glory of God on display in creation. And verses 3 and 4 go on to tell us that, look, that, 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 that revelation, that, that revelation of who God is, goes everywhere, that there's not a place where it's not heard. It doesn't take speech, it doesn't take words, but it is nevertheless broadcast to the world as a whole. There is no time, there is no place left in darkness without a witness to God's glory. You see that there in verse 4? Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Right? That's talking about the, the proclamation of the, the sky above. It's talking about the declaration of the heavens above. There is no place where their declaration is not heard. There is no place in the world that is not reached with this evidence of God's glory. Furthermore, it says to us that the sun itself, that the sun shines with its light in every inch of the planet, right? You see that poetic uh, description in verses 5 and 6 of the sun's traveling uh, a movement, right? The sunlight around the world, that it, there's no place where its heat is not felt. You see that there in verse 6, there is nothing hidden from its heat. It's everywhere. 
God's glory is on display everywhere. Nature's testimony of the glory of God has been seen by every single person on the planet. That's what verses 1 through 6 are saying to us. So a fair question would be, if that's true, then why isn't everyone on planet Earth worshiping God? The one true God. If it's so clear, if it's everywhere, if it's pouring out speech continually, if it's declaring the glory of God and proclaiming his handiwork, if, there's, if it goes everywhere, there's not a place where his voice is not heard, just like the sun shines in every inch of the planet, then why isn't every person worshiping the one true God and bowing their knee to the creator and king of the universe? Well, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 gives us some help in answering that question. This is what Romans 1, 18 through 20 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made. So ever since the creation of the world, so they are without excuse. In other words, what Romans 1, 18 through 20 is saying is yes, Yes, it should have been clearly perceived by every person on planet Earth, but there's one huge problem, and that is in our sin, in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. The problem is not with God's revelation and creation. It's not that the sun doesn't shine bright enough. It's not that the universe is not impressive enough. No, the problem is that our eyes are veiled by sin, that we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. We refuse to see it. That's why Paul says they are without excuse. The evidence is there. But we love sin and self and pride so much that we simply cannot see it. The heavens declare the glory of God, but our sin nature shouts so loudly about our own glory, our own wisdom, our own desires, our own understanding, that it drowns out the testimony that's in the skies above us. You see, the universe says to us that God is more immense and powerful than we could ever imagine. I mean, even if you listen to a atheistic astronomer talk about the universe, they are in awe of the universe, right? It's unfathomable, the distances and the size and the power that exist in the universe. There are stars that are bigger than our solar system, right? It is unthinkable, the immensity of the universe. God testifies to his glory in the heavens and in the skies, which, by the way, as Christians means 
You know, those who have been awakened by the, by the, the, the mercy of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Christ, we, we shouldn't be surprised at the immensity of the universe. You know, often people say, well, it's crazy that, you know, the planet Earth is just a small little tiny planet orbiting an unimpressive star on the outer reaches of an outer arm of the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions of galaxies. It just makes no sense that, that we would be it. But the reality is, as Christians, if we listen to God's word, that's exactly what we should expect. That the, the heavens, that the universe should be beyond imagination because it is a testimony to the glory of God. And if it testifies to the glory of God, then it should be overwhelmingly impressive. And so we should look at the immensity of the universe, the, the, the billions of light years that exist out there, and we should say, well, that actually makes sense because God is beyond our ability to understand his blinded sinful eyes instead interpret the vastness of the universe as evidence against the God of the Bible and therefore what Paul says in Romans 1 is that the declaration of God's glory in nature actually condemns humanity because we have ignored it because we have allowed our unrighteousness to suppress it. And therefore, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all of us is without excuse because the evidence of God's glory is everywhere. And so what the psalmist is doing here, what David is doing here in Psalm 19 is setting up a contrast between the revelation of God in nature and the limits of it, and the transforming power of the written word of God of the scriptures. You see, God's revelation in nature cannot save us. It cannot change us, right? As majestic and as wonderful and as awe-inspiring as the wonders of creation are, no one will ever be transformed into the image of Christ by looking through a telescope, No one's ever going to become more like Jesus by staring at Mount Everest. No, there are limits of God's revelation in nature. Though it reveals the glory and grandeur of who, it is, of who he is, it cannot break through the blindness of our hearts. It cannot transform us. It cannot equip us for every good work. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says about God's word, it cannot bring us to faith, as Romans 10.14 says about God's word. But the good news for us this morning is that even though nature cannot do that, the good news is that the scriptures can. That the Bible we are holding in our hands this morning, the Bible we have read this morning, the Bible we have sung the truths from this morning, the Bible we are... Uh, that I'm preaching from this morning, that you are joining me and looking at this morning, is able to do those very things. And so let's look at this second truth from Psalm 19. Let's look at the power of the Word of God, the power of the Word of God. So look there with me at verses 7 through 11. So what we find here uh, in verses 7 through 9 
are just multiple descriptions or words that are just, uh, being used in place of the word scripture. So you see the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. Those are all different words that are referring to God's written word, law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, rules, right? Those are all just different words being used in a poetic way to describe the scriptures, to describe God's written word. And notice with me what the psalmist says about every single one of those. They are all of the Lord. They're all his. Scripture is the word of the Lord. It is the divinely inspired word. The words we have read in Psalm 19 this morning are God's words. We are reading him speaking to us. They are his, right? There are many places we can look at in scripture for that, but here is one of the places that makes it clear. They are his words. It is the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord, it is God's words that we have the privilege to read when we pursue his word. David says that those words are, you see there in verse 7, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, there in verse 9. The second half of verse 9, true. Right, what glorious descriptions and it's exactly what we would expect if Scripture is God's words himself, right? That those words would be perfect, without error. They are God's words, therefore they are perfect. They are God's words, therefore they are sure and right and pure and clean and true. You see how he is even here beginning to, to woo us, to draw us in and saying, this is the nature of the Scriptures that you hold in your hands. This is the nature of God's word of the Bible that sits on your shelves at home. Now, before we get too far into the details, I want us to just look at a few basic, obvious realities communicated in these verses. Look, look with me at how the word of God is described in verses 7 through 11. It can revive our soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It endures together. They are true. They're to be desired more than fine gold, right? These are glorious descriptions of God's word. So even if we just stopped right now, right? If we just shut down the service right now, this is all we had to say. And all I said to you this morning is God's word can revive your soul. It can make you wise. It can rejoice your heart and enlighten your eyes and it endures forever and it is absolute truth. Wouldn't that in and of itself make you want God's word? Right? I mean, think about it, right? How many of you, if I asked you, how many of you want your soul to be dead and lifeless? Does anybody want that? Does anybody want to be a simple-minded fool? Does anybody want to be depressed and have a joyless heart? Do you want to be blind to spiritual realities? Do you want something that's good for just a little while and doesn't endure forever? 
Do you want to be deceived for the rest of your life? Right? None of us want any of those things, or I hope that you don't. Nobody wants those things. And what God is saying to us in Psalm 19, what God is saying through David in Psalm 19, is that you don't have to live that way. That none of those things have to be true about you if you have the scriptures. He's saying to us, look, you don't want to live your life without the word of God. Now, we could spend a lot of time analyzing all these different words that David uses to describe the scriptures, law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, rules, etc. But, but the real heart, the real drive of this passage is what the word of God does. Those phrases that we just looked over, the fact that the word of God can revive your soul, that it makes wise the simple, that it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, and that it endures together and is true. So I just want to take a few minutes and just walk through those descriptions of God's word of what it can do in your life. Because remember, our goal this morning is to woo you, to draw you in, to help you see what the word of God can accomplish in your life. And so verse 7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect and it can revive your soul. The word of God can wake you from your spiritual slumber. Look, the word revive, that prefix re, revive, means to give life again. You see, I love that the, the Bible is so very often real. And it knows that you're going to have ups and downs in your walk with Christ, in your, in your spiritual journey. You're going to have ups and downs and that your soul is going to continually need to be revived. It's not that you come to life once and you never struggle again. No, you're going to struggle. You're going to feel dead and lifeless. And you're going to need life brought back to your soul. And David is saying to us that the word of God can do that. That it can revive your soul. That it can awaken you from this, as I said earlier, this spiritual slumber. And the only way to come out of a place of feeling like you're spiritually dead is to expose yourself to God's word. That is what can revive your soul, to put yourself in front of God's word on a regular basis. And look, there's going to be days in this coming year where you're going to feel dead and lifeless in your soul. And you're not going to be motivated to read God's word. And the temptation is going to be, I just don't feel like it today. I feel dead on the inside. And so I want right now this morning to help establish the truth in your heart that on those days that you feel that way, those are the most important days to open the Bible and to read it and let it do what God has promised to do, to let it revive your soul. It's why we need this morning before we get there. Look, you may be in that place already today. It may not even need to wait till next week or next month. But I'm telling you right now that God says his word can revive you. You see, the reality is we can't wait until we feel like reading the word of God to start reading. We start reading because it's the only hope we have of waking up from our spiritual slumber. So let's hear the truth of God's word to us this morning. Let's hear what David is saying it can do in our hearts. 
and commit ourselves to read more and more of God's word until it awakens our souls. I'm reminded of a, 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 a Christian author from the past, Wesley Duell. This is what he said in his times of spiritual struggles and darkness. I have at times read as many as 50 chapters from God's word before I was completely alone with God. But on some of those occasions, I received such unexpected guidance that my life has been greatly benefited. Now, some of us hear that and we say, what? 50 chapters, and we start doing the math about how long that would take to read, and that, that's crazy talk, right? But I believe what David would say to us is, do you want to live? Do you want your soul to be revived? Do you want to be awakened from your slumber? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that it requires 50 chapters a day, right? That's not what I'm saying. I, that's, that's laying a burden on you that would be overbearing, and that's not my goal this morning. But my goal is to say that there are times when we need to be willing to do whatever it takes to read as long as we need to until we sense that God is at work in us and drawing us to himself and reviving the deadness of our souls. The, the point ultimately, whether it's one chapter you're reading or 10 chapters you have to read or whether it's one verse that you just need to sit with for 15 straight minutes meditating over it, whatever it may be, the point is we must be willing to do whatever it takes to allow God's word to revive our souls. That's the point. That's what the promise is in Psalm 19, verse 7. And by the way, this is why a Bible reading plan can be so helpful. I know we talk about that a lot in this church, but I unashamedly will talk about it once again. I have found in my life and in the lives of those that uh, the Lord has allowed me to disciple and to be a part of that just about the only way you are going to have a daily, regular habit of being in God's word is if you find a plan. Now, look, not every plan works for every person. Some of you reading through the Bible in a year is exactly the right plan for you. Some of you maybe have never done that, and that seems overwhelming. And you just need to commit to read through the New Testament this year. Some of you, that may seem overwhelming. And maybe you just need to commit to reading a chapter a day this year. Others of you, uh, maybe that seems even too much. And so you just need to do what I know some others in the church have benefited from and pick one book of the Bible and read it straight through and then pick the next book of the Bible and read it straight through. Or, or maybe it's you need to pick one of the shorter epistles like Ephesians and read it every day for a month, right? I know others have benefited from that. I'm not here declaring to you what kind of plan you ought to have. But I'm saying, find a plan so that when you wake up in the morning, you're not wondering, what am I going to read today? And you're not flipping through the Bible aimlessly, just trying to find something. Have a plan. It will help you get into the habit of regularly reading God's word. And so while we don't want to read to just check a box, checking a box helps you develop the habit of reading. And so I want you to know that uh, you can find a number of different Bible plans on our website. Go to ChristFellowshipNC.org and click on resources, and then it will say Bible reading plans. 
Uh, there are a number of different plans on that page. I printed off five different options for you this morning. There's about 10 copies of each of those options on the table in the back. If you uh, don't have a plan, I would encourage you to go check out that table before you leave this morning. You can grab one of those, fold it in half, stick it in your Bible, and have it with you every day. I would also encourage you to find a partner to do it with, whether it's your spouse or uh, a child or a good friend or whatever it may be, have someone who you are reading through the Bible with so that you can talk about what you're reading so that you can hold each other accountable. Partner up with someone to do it. That's what Hebrews 10.24 means that we just looked at a few weeks ago in Hebrews when it said we need to spur one another along to love and good works. This is one way that you can do that to push each other toward exposing yourself to God's word on a regular basis so that it can revive our souls. Because there's going to be days when my soul is dead and I don't feel like reading God's word and I need you to encourage me. And I know there's going to be days when you don't feel like it. You're going to need me to encourage you. And we're in this together. So let's commit to pursuing God's word together so that it can revive our souls. It also, the second half of verse 7 says that it makes wise the simple. Now, in our modern culture, the word simple often is used in a positive sense, right? There's the whole simple living movement, right? We want to get rid of excess, or there are simple foods, meaning you use only a few ingredients. There's this drive toward simplicity, and I'm not here this morning to criticize any of that. I'm just here to say that the Bible is not using the word simple in that way. The word simple here is not a positive thing. It is a negative thing, right? Proverbs 14, 15 says, the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. Or Proverbs 8, 5, where uh, Proverbs compares being simple to being a fool. Quote, O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. So when this says it can make wise the simple, it means it makes wise the foolish. It makes wise the foolish. It can transform the foolish man into a man or woman of wisdom and conviction. The Bible gives us a backbone. It helps us understand our own hearts and the hearts of others. It helps us understand the direction of history, what God is seeking to accomplish in this world. It gives us a solid foundation for morality and ethics and for grace and forgiveness. It awakens us to the truth of reality. It makes wise the foolish. Or as John MacArthur has said, Christians are the only ones who are able to see the world as it really is. Christians are the only ones who are able to see the world as it really is. It makes wise the foolish. Why would we not want to sit at the feet of the Almighty under the truth of his word and allow it to make us wise? The word also, verse 8 says, rejoices the heart. Reading the Bible is able to bring you joy. Now listen, that does not mean that tomorrow morning when you get up or tomorrow evening before you go to bed, whenever it is that you set aside time to read God's word, 
It doesn't mean that when you finish reading that chapter for the day or those two chapters or those three chapters, that you're going to be the happiest you've ever been that entire day. It's not what it, that's not what this means when it says that it rejoices the heart. It's something deeper and more meaningful than that. Right? It's the kind of joy that happens when you read God's word and you weep because you're so convicted about the ugliness of your soul and you're convicted about the sin you're giving yourself over to, but you're weeping because you're so thankful that God has shown it to you. Right, there's a rejoicing even in that weeping. It's the kind of rejoicing when you're going through a trial and you're suffering. It might be a chronic illness. It might be a, a terminal, potential terminal illness. It might be the suffering of a loved one. And there is not the worldly sense of happiness in your heart. But when you read words like Romans 8.28 that says, God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, you can take great comfort and joy in knowing that even though you don't understand what he's doing in your life, some way, somehow, he has said it is for your good. And it hurts and you weep and you cry, but at the same time, your heart can rejoice in trusting your faithful, sovereign Father. And look, that kind of rejoicing that the Word brings only happens through a continual, daily exposure to God's Word as you see how He has faithfully worked in the lives of people throughout history. It's not going to come through thumbing through the Bible and putting your finger on a verse. Though God can work that way, I don't deny it. But it's through a regular exposure to God's word that establishes your heart and makes you ready and helps you see that God is relentlessly faithful to his children. It is that kind of faith that rejoices the heart that he will never leave you and that he will never forsake you and that he will one day, sooner or later, turn your mourning into rejoicing. The word rejoices our heart. The word also enlightens our eyes. The second half of verse 8 says to us, just as it makes wise the simple, it gives us understanding we would never have on our own. It helps us see what we would never otherwise see or understand about life, death, and eternity. It helps us see reality as it is, not what we want it to be. Right? Humanity has all kinds of philosophies and ethical systems and moral reasonings, but ultimately they all collapse and the only access to truth is if the word of God enlightens our eyes to who he is. He helps us see reality as it is, not as we want it to be. He helps us see the depravity of our own souls and the depravity of the souls of all of humanity, the wickedness of our hearts. He helps us to see the glory of God on display in his justice and in his mercy. It is by his word that we can see his glory on display in creation, that it's all his handiwork and the works of his hand. And this sight-giving, joy-creating, wisdom-imparting, life-giving word is not temporary. It endures forever. You see that in verse 9? The fear of the Lord is clean, 
enduring forever. We can go back to the well over and over and over and over again, and it will never run dry. Listen, don't take that for granted. There's so much in our life that we think is stable and steadfast, but I'm here to tell you that many of those things will not be around in the next 20 or 30 years. I'm reading a a book right now, and it, it mentioned that in 1990, these were the 10 largest companies on the stock market. So this was 30 years ago. IBM, Exxon, GE, AT&T, Philip Morris, GM, Merck, Bristol-Myers, Amico, and DuPont. Not a single one of them are in the top 10 anymore. Not a single one. Nobody thought IBM or Exxon or GE especially was going anywhere. But now you can guess the top 10 now, right? Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, Facebook, Visa, Tesla, Walmart, and others. Right? It feels like how can there be a world where Amazon is not at the top of the, uh, top of the pile, where Apple's not a top 10 company anymore, right? All those movies I've paid for that we own on Amazon that one day we won't be, even be able to access because Amazon won't be around anymore, right? 30 years from now, that top 10 won't be the same. Everybody thought Standard Oil, right? Rockefeller's company would be around forever, It always changes. Things always collapse. The Roman Empire, the greatest in civilization at that point, it existed for a thousand years or more than a thousand years. It's just rubble. But the Word of God, the Word of God endures forever. It will not fade It will not go away. Its promises will not fail us. Why would we give ourselves to anything else? And that brings us to our final truth for this morning, which is the worth of the word. The worth of the word. Look there with me at verses 10 and 11. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. David tells us in verse 10 that we should desire the truth of God's word more than gold, even much, even much fine gold. Look, there are people, like you've all seen it, right? There are a lot of people that have done a lot of dumb things on reality TV shows and competitions to gain thousands or tens of thousands or a million dollars, right? People will do the craziest things to earn some money. Now, I think if we're being honest, we would do some of those things to earn a million dollars, right? Let's not point the finger at everybody else. Let's just be honest. And I'm not even saying it's wrong to do those things. It's not what I'm saying, 
But what I am saying is, do we desire God's word more than those riches? David says, God says, we ought to. More to be desired are they than gold. Do we desire God's word like we would desire a brick of gold? Am I willing to put the effort and energy into reading God's word that I put into other things for which I gain riches? That's the question being pressed upon us in verse 10. David says it's, it's sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, right? Just a poetic way of saying, look, it, it, it will be delicious to us. It will satisfy our longings when we read it and expose ourselves to it. The problem is not with God's word. It's that we dull our senses because we're satisfied with such passing and ultimately unsatisfying passions. We often view reading the Bible as a chore or a task. And what God is saying to us is we should not view it that way. We should view it like getting to eat all the sugar at Christmas, right? It should be sweet to us that we have the privilege of reading it and exposing ourselves to it. Look, this is a battle that we have to fight in our world today. Because the phone that you carry in your pocket and that I carry in my pocket has trained us to be distracted constantly. It has trained us to have a short attention span. It's trained us to have immediate gratification. And as Christians, we have to put that to death. We have to fight against it. Because it is only through the steady, daily plodding of reading God's word that our souls will be slowly transformed into the likeness of Christ. And it's not going to happen in one day or in two days or in two years. It is a lifetime of pursuing God's word and slowly allowing it to change you. And as you do it, it will become sweet to your tongue. And you will desire it more than gold as you see it at work in your life. Look, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. There's not many promises that I can make as a pastor. I cannot promise you that in this coming year, you're not going to face the worst trial of your life. I can't promise you that this isn't going to be the worst year of your life. I hope it's not. But I can't promise any of those things. I can't promise you that, that you're going to uh, be financially stable for this entire year. I can't promise any of those worldly things. I hope that for you. I hope that for me. <laughs> but what I can promise you is, if you, by the grace of God, commit yourself to daily exposing yourself to his word and reading it and pursuing it, you will be more like Jesus on December 31st than you are today. You will be more satisfied in Christ on December 31st than you are today. You will be different 
Your soul will be revived. You will be more wise than you are today. Your heart will experience rejoicing and your eyes will be enlightened. That I can promise you because God has promised that to you. And of course, I can also promise you that everything that happens to you in this year, God says, will be for your good. It will be for your good and for the glory of his name. You see, what David has done for us here in Psalm 19, he has said, look, I don't want you to be spiritually dead or to be foolishly simple-minded or to be spiritually depressed or to live with eyes darkened to reality and therefore David says to you, God says to you, and I say to you this morning, therefore come drink from the riches of God's word. You don't want to live without it. And of course, ultimately, ultimately, the only reason that it's able to bring us joy and satisfaction and make us wise and rejoice our heart is because of what Jesus has done for us. Because it all points to Jesus. It's all his story, right? It's what, it's what God's word says to us in Luke 24, 27, when after Jesus' resurrection, he's walking with the two men on the road to Emmaus. And it says of Jesus that he began with Moses and the prophets, and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, that from Moses forward, it all points to Jesus. It all points to the hope that we have in him, to our need for a Savior, and how he comes and satisfies our every longing and pays our every debt. And so because of the finished work of Christ, we can read God's word and find satisfaction in him and in him alone. Without Jesus, there would be no lasting joy or life from the word of God. It would only tell of the death and destruction that we all deserve. But the good news is that it also tells us of the gospel. That Jesus came and lived a perfect righteous life in our place that he died and took on God's wrath in our place and that he victoriously rose from the grave. And so we hope in the life to come that we have in Jesus Christ. So how can we neglect such a precious gift that God has given us in his word? So my challenge to you this morning is a simple one, but a challenging one. And that is to make the Word of God a priority in your life in this coming year. I strongly encourage you to do that by finding a Bible reading plan that works for you and finding a partner to do it with. Again, there are plans in the back. There are additional plans in addition to those options on our website. If none of those work for you, contact me. I will help you find one that works for you. It would be my joy to be able to do that for you, okay? Let's, by God's grace, do this together in the coming year and let him be at work in our hearts that our souls might be revived and that we might be wise, that our hearts would rejoice and that our eyes would be enlightened. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the truth of your word that you have revealed yourself in such a written form. Father, we confess that if not for the power of your spirit within us, we would be blinded to all of these realities. We too would be blinded to the evidence that you pour out day by day in nature. But we are thankful that you didn't stop at the revelation and the glories on display in nature, but you also spoke to us through your written word. 
And so, Father, I pray for every person in this room, for every person who's traveling today and is joining through the live stream, I pray that you would freshly commit us by the power of your spirit to the truth of your word in this coming year. And I pray that you would do what you've already promised to do, that you would change us as we read your word together in the coming year. Father, I look forward to watching what you're going to accomplish in each person in this room and also through us corporately for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.